Uh, hello, my name is Liam. Uh, we're going to be reading the Bible now. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the corners and at the back there. Uh, it'll be helpful to have that later on during the Bible talk as well. So I'll give you a moment to grab one of those. For those of you who do have your Bibles, uh, we are reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16 through to 6 verse 2. In the church Bibles from the back, it is on page 1025. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At an acceptable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Thanks, Kenan. Thanks, Musos. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm uh, Tim. I am the uh, pastor of our 1045 AM service, and I'm not playing on my phone. I'm just finding my clock so I don't speak for an hour and a half, which you'll be thankful for. Um, let's, uh, let's pray briefly and we'll jump in. Let's bow our heads. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, you love us and that you call us into relationship with you and that you give us a new identity. As we think about that today, we pray, Lord, that we might find our true core and our source in you. Amen. Uh, well, there's a, an exciting moment that happens in every teenager's life. Uh, you look forward to it, and that's when you're standing outside an RSL or some kind of similar venue, and as people shuffle in, uh, the bouncer crosses his arms uh, as he looks at you, and you reach out into your back pocket, and you pull out your ID. Uh, this is the moment where it doesn't matter if you are a baby-faced assassin who's never seen a razor. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a girl who looks like she needs to be babysat more than she babysits. Uh, according to the government and according to what is in the bouncer's hand, you are 18 years old and you can walk into that place and you can buy a beverage if you want or you can do whatever it is you do in that place. Of course, 10 years later, you'll have a moment as depressing as that one was exciting uh, and that is, uh, you've got some workmates and you're waiting in line and they pull out their ID and then you walk up to uh, the bouncer and the bouncer looks at you and he says, mate, you do not need to prove your age to me. <laughs> when it comes down to it, at 17, you long to be 18, you long for that milestone of identification that says, I'm an adult now in other people's eyes. And at 28, uh, you long to be able to say, I still look young, I'm still relevant, I don't actually look my age. Uh, how we identify ourselves 
and how we identify other people helps us make sense of the world that we're in. In 2018, there was a pastor called James McDonald, and he decided that he was going to dress up as a homeless man for a week, and he was going to sit outside of different campuses of his church. This is a picture of him at the end of the week in the church service. Now, on one side, I think it's kind of creepy for a minister to do. I'm going to test all of my congregants to see how they respond. But in another sense, it was interesting to see the different responses he had. He said for some members of his church, he would watch them walk past him and when they looked at him, they identified him as a problem. I feel uncomfortable when I see a homeless person. I don't know if they're going to ask me for something or what I'm supposed to do, so I'll pretend like I'm listening to a great song in my headphones and I'll walk past. But he was also encouraged at the same time to see a number of other people who brought him cups of coffee, who sat down next to him and got alongside him and asked if they could help him. For many of the people in his church, they may have identified him as a homeless person, but they also also identified him as somebody who was made in God's image, who had inherent value and worth, and they wanted to love him and care for him. Because how we identify ourselves and how we identify others helps us make sense of our world and helps us make sense of the God who made us. So as we're going to be thinking about this today, uh, it's helpful if you have uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5 open. We will come to it in a little bit, but we're also going to be taking a a bit of time to look through other parts of the Bible. And we're going to be thinking about four big things. Uh, Firstly, the idea of identity as a tree. Uh, Secondly, identity at its core. Uh, What it means for us as Christians to have a new identity. And then finally, identifying what does it actually all mean in our lives. Uh, Well, the window in my office uh, is uh, just on the other side of the fence outside, uh, and it's a wonderful spot. I wish I had a tree that looked this amazing, but there is one tree in our kind of a a play area, and I get to look out on it. Uh, Right at the moment, it looks like a hay fever sufferer's nightmare. It is just dropping uh, flowers everywhere. There's a bed of flowers around it, but it is beautiful to look at. I know in uh, three months' time, it is going to be verdant and green and beautiful. Uh, Three months after that, it's going to buzz and crackle with oranges and yellows and all of that beautiful stuff like this picture. And then in six months' time, it's going to be the skeleton of a tree. It's great to be able to watch the seasons change. It's one of the reasons I was excited about living in orange. Uh, But uh, also... Uh, Throughout all of that change, there's one thing that remains the same, and that is the trunk that allows all of these other things to happen. And there's a deep sense in which our identity really is quite like a tree. Uh, There are aspects of our lives that, like leaves on a tree, are are quite seasonal. They come and they go, and that's okay. That's just part of our lives. So I've enjoyed seeing, as I look out at congregations, that the, uh, the young kids wearing the Bunstonworth United soccer uh, jerseys, uh, they've been put aside and now I start hearing kids talk more about uh, uh, which cricket team they're playing for and you see the cricket stuff. Uh, it's wonderful to see that these are uh, parts of our life, they're things that shape how we spend our Saturdays, uh, but they come and they go like the leaves on the trees. Some of those leaves we know sort of thicken out into a a branch in our lives. Uh, Maybe it's uh, I used to sort of like riding, but now a a mammal is who I am, a middle-aged man in Lycra. Hey, Chris. Um, 
For others, it might be that TV show that you're into that now you're into for a solid season uh, or the podcast or that hobby that you love that you like to spend a lot of time on. Some of our passions thicken out into a branch, but the real problem, the real difficulty becomes when we take something that is a good element, a good branch of our life, but it becomes the trunk, it becomes the core of who we are. Uh, in uh, the 1980s, Percival Legue is a, a Filipino man who decided uh, he wanted to get a kid's meal because the kid's meal had a Popeye toy and he really loved Popeye and olive oil. Uh, so he got that and then he thought, actually, I like kids' toys in general. And so over the next 15 years, he slowly became the Guinness World Record holder for the largest kid's meal toy collection in the whole world. Uh, this is just one room in his house. Uh, but the problem is, uh, it's not his house. He shares the house with his parents and his siblings and his nieces and his nephews. And as his collection grew toward over 20,000 toys, they started running out of places to do things. That is supposed to be on the left where they're supposed to have their dinner. Why, it's good to have a hobby. It's good to have something that you love to do. But what do you do when it takes over your house like this? Well, of course, you say, well, I know what's most important. And so we built a new house for more of his toys to go into. Well, this was the problem. Percival was a son, he's a brother, he's an uncle. But the things that appear to be taking the number one priority in his life is not the family who loves him and who cares for him and and encourages him, but it is the pieces of plastic that he wanted to collect. Maybe his family were just really supportive and they wanted to help him pursue his dreams. But it's equally likely that he took something that was like a leaf or maybe even a branch of his life and he made it the core of his identity. This is who I am and this is what I do, even to the exclusion of those people who I'm supposed to love most closely. Now, I suspect or at least I hope there is none of us who have a collection quite uh, this extreme. But there's a sense in which we all have a similar kind of struggle. That is, we can all be tempted to take something that is at the peripheral of who we are and make it something that is essential to who we are. What elements of our identity are and should remain simply leaves, but they become uh, the core of what we're about. Uh, It's a challenge for us, and we actually see it's a challenge that appears uh, all throughout the Bible. This is not just our story, it is humanity's story. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are living a life that is unambiguous in their understanding of what their identity is. Uh, They're made by God, they're made to relate to God and to each other, and they're made to care for his creation. That is the core of who they are. But as the serpent enters the picture and as he tempts Adam and Eve, uh, you see how he challenges uh, that core identity for them. Uh, Don't believe what God tells you. Uh, You are the author of you. And you are the one who gets to decide what is most important for you. The God who is the author of all things, the God who gave Adam and Eve everything that they had, instead of being the author of their story, just becomes a character in their story as they deny him control. But to deny the one who made them and who gave them the relationship they had is to fall out of God's favour and for Adam and Eve to fall out of the garden. If they were going to ignore God's good purposes for their lives then they would experience the consequences of that, which was a broken relationship with God. And in fact, the whole of the Old Testament is really something that follows this as a core storyline. 
What does it mean to ground your identity in the God that made you? And what does it mean when you fail to do that? Uh, So you can have somebody wonderful like Abraham, who is a a man after God's own heart. Central to his identity is the fact that God has made him. And yet at the same time, we read on multiple occasions that Abraham also identifies as somebody who fears others. And so on two different occasions, uh, he passes off his wife as his sister because he's also scared that somebody else is going to kill him. He overrides his trust in God out of fear for other people. We see this for the nation of Israel a little bit later on as well. They're led out of captivity in Egypt by Moses. They're waiting to enter into the promised land. And yet they have a moment where they say they would rather have security in Egypt as slaves than deal with the uncertainty of having to wait on God's promises despite every good thing that God has shown them as he's brought them to that point. Later on in the Old Testament story, Israel will get so wrapped up in their identity as being about a a geographical thing, we have to be in Jerusalem, that they will ignore God's prophet Ezekiel who warns them that God's spirit is no longer with the people in Jerusalem but has left with the people who've gone into captivity and God is actually with his people in Babylon. The heart of the problem for Israel throughout their history is the same problem at the heart that we have, every man and woman and child, and that is that we either fail to recognize or for some we willfully ignore the core of our identity and that is that we are made by God, that we are God's creations living in the world that God has made and that God has shared with us through his word and through his prophets and through his son Jesus Christ how we might flourish in the world that he has given us. The problem of sin and brokenness in our world starts with the denial of who we are at our core when we replace the stamp of our creator with the stamp of our own identity. We mistake things that should be our branches or leaves with the trunk of who we are. And it becomes a problem because when we think of sin, often we think of sin as, uh, you know, it's robbing houses or kicking puppies or something like that. Uh, It's the clearly bad, bad stuff. But when the Bible talks about our broken relationship with God, just like Adam and Eve, uh, it more often reflects taking a good thing and making it uh, the most important thing, the only thing. Our identity first and foremost is as people created by God. And the importance of understanding what is at the trunk uh, helps us determine also the value of everything after that. Uh, I love uh, listening to music. Uh, In particular, I like listening to 1990s rap, Uh, but I really love good storytelling uh, more. Uh, So when I'm in the car, my priority is I turn off my Spotify and I listen to the audio book that I've I've got from the library. Uh, But as much as I love storytelling, uh, I love my kids more. So if I'm driving my kid in the car, the radio goes, goes off altogether and that's the time that I hopefully have some kind of meaningful conversation with them or at least I say things and they grunt in response. Uh, we all make decisions about the things we value in life and we all have to work through that question. Uh, what is the priority level that I hold in different things so that I can make right decisions about things that are more important? But the problem is when we mistake things, even good things, for the best thing. I'm a, a big reader, and so one of my favorite examples of this is in a, a, one of my all-time favorite books called The Great Divorce. 
It's not actually about divorce as such. It was written by C.S. Lewis, and it's a story about a whole bunch of people who have the opportunity to go up to the foothills in front of heaven. Uh, and uh, as they're there, they meet people who come down to welcome them to come up into heaven itself, uh, but each of them find a different reason why they want to turn back and they want to hold on to the life that they have. And the most heartbreaking one in that story is there a, is a mother who comes along uh, and she says, I just want to be with my son. I want to love him because he was the center of my world. And the angel that has come down to her says, well, he's already up there. You can have him. You just can't have him the way you want him. You've made him an idol. You've made him the center where God has been. But if you understand God to be where he should be, not only can you have God, but you can have your son as well. But in the end, she walks away because she can only love her son if it's under her terms and God sits under that. The good of a mother loving her son. Is there anything more worthwhile and lovely in our world? But if it becomes an idol that pushes God out of the place that he has, in the end it's something that doesn't love. It doesn't love the son and it doesn't love the God who gave the mother that son. Whether it's family or food or sex or power, there are an infinite number of options where we all struggle with wanting to be the master of our own identity. I want to understand and I want to have what I want to have. And this is why the God who made everything entered into his own creation. Through the person and work of Jesus, even before his birth, Jesus' identity was declared clearly. Joseph is told, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus, that is, Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself is the one who understands at his very core who he is and what is most important. Even as a 12-year-old, his parents go on a trip to Jerusalem. The whole family unit moves. They're heading on their way back home and they realize they've lost Jesus. And when they come back, he says to them, they finally find him after searching. And they say, he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Most importantly, Jesus understood what it meant for him to carry his identity as God's son. When Peter makes a glorious declaration in Matthew 16 that Jesus is the Messiah, the person who's been set aside for this particular task, Jesus then shakes his disciples to the core by spelling out exactly what it means to have God at the core of his identity. Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Fundamental to our identity is the reality that we're made by God with purpose. But also that reality that we so often take this core truth and we cast it aside uh, to actually define ourselves in a bunch of other ways. Uh, But Jesus comes to live out his identity, uh, identity perfectly as a son of God, but also as a man, who in dying on the cross and then rising again from the dead, he offers us a new life and a new identity. Which brings us to the passage that we read out earlier, where you're feeling like we weren't going to get to 2 Corinthians at all. Uh, If you've got your Bibles in front of you, this is what verse 16 says. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective... Yet now we no longer know him in this way. To understand our core identity is people who've been made by God with purpose intention and intention. 
means also understanding that we are who we are because of what Jesus has done to offer us this. And as we understand our identity as people who have been saved by Jesus, then that changes the way we see everybody around us as well, doesn't it? You can cast your eyes around this room today and we all come from different backgrounds, different life experiences, different heights, different genders. And yet you can see a, a room that is filled with people who've been made in the image of God and are dearly loved by him. And didn't Naomi do a great work in kind of catching that in the kids' talk? But it also means that uh, when you leave this afternoon and you're driving on the northern distributor, uh, you also see that person doing 40 in the 70 zone and then you think maybe a bad thought that you shouldn't and then you remember that that person is made in God's image as well and that God, God longs to see that person come to, come to a, a saving relationship with him. On Wednesday morning on your day off and you're sitting behind that four people teeing off at Duntry League, uh, that is the reality for them as well. The nine people living in a medium-sized room in a favela in Brazil, that is their reality too. Those we love, those who frustrate us, and the billions of people that we will never even meet are not just anonymous characters in a merciless universe, but they are people that God loves and that Jesus died for. And that people that we have the opportunity to share God's love with. And we see them in the new light because we see Jesus in a new light as well. Not just as a great teacher or an encouraging example. But he is the saviour who offers us new identity. We're not just made in God's image. But if we put our trust and faith in Jesus, we are redeemed by God's son who died for us and rose again. Look what verse 17 says in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Last week when we were looking at fulfillment, we saw that God is the fixed point that offers us a real fulfillment when everything else in the world moves up and down like waves on the sea. This week we see the same is true for identity. We are all looking for something that defines us as a person that's at the trunk, at the very roots of who we are. But the temptation is always to look at those things in our world that come and go like leaves on a tree. God calls us to the eternal and consistent character and nature that he has. The one who's created us and the one who's showed us the best way to live and to thrive and to flourish in our world. And his son redeems us and gives us a new life so that we can step into that identity, not because we always get it right, but because he got it right for us. And so we say, well, this is great. We find our identity in God, but what does this mean for us? Uh, well, firstly, hopefully this means that it helps us see every other identity marker in our lives in a clearer light. Uh, if who I am first and foremost is my identity in Christ, then other things that I value, uh, even if they're big things that I value, I come second next to that greatest thing. One of the hot-button areas in identity politics is uh, sex and sexuality. Uh, so this might be the uh, a moment where you're here where we're doing a talk about identity and you think, okay, are we going to talk about uh, LGBTQIA plus stuff? But I actually want to suggest that we would miss the massive area of concern and we'd be maybe guilty of looking to the other rather than looking at ourselves if we get caught up just in that picture. Why do I say that? Well, research by the University of Melbourne says that 
Uh, 85% of men and over 60% of women uh, regularly look at pornography. And to focus on our one particular subgroup is to misrepresent the reality of the relationship that our culture as a whole has with sex and sexuality. In a world where sex sells everything and we have the unlimited access to instant gratification thanks to the internet, the challenge is not for a particular people group, but for all of us to ask that question, do I see my sexual drives as my defining characteristic, the thing that so much of the media, all of the TV shows that I watch and all of the stuff that I consume, do I believe what I'm told there? And that if the God who is at the core of my identity, has declared how I ought to live my life, am I willing to submit myself to the headship of God even in these areas where I feel really strongly? And how that actually works out plays differently for many different people. For the Christian author Rebecca McLaughlin, for her it was a matter of saying she'd experienced same-sex attraction her whole life. But she had to work out what does that mean now as she later on got married to a man and had kids. At the same time, there's an Anglican minister and author called Vaughan Roberts uh, who writes and shares uh, very openly that he's experienced same-sex attraction his whole life, but he's chosen to honour God uh, by actually uh, remaining celibate in his life. And actually, gloriously, out of that, he's written a wonderful book about how we as a culture, when we focus on sex and sexuality, actually undermine and devalue meaningful platonic friendships that we can have with other people. Maybe it's the married woman who says that they have to work out how they honour their relationship with their husband, uh, even when they feel like their romance might have gone out of their life. Or if your experience is like mine in the 20s, it's the young man who has to seek to be uh, disciplined and honourable toward women uh, when in their footy club there is a culture of casual misogyny toward them, treating them as objects rather than people. Of course, it's so much more than just a matter of sex, though. It could be our attitude toward money is the way that we then shape who, what is at our core and how we treat others or clothes or education or power dynamics. We all have the opportunity to assess how we express our core identity as God's children and how that helps us shape our attitude toward everything else, that we hold tightly onto who we are in Christ Jesus and we hold loosely onto everything else. The relationships that we have with the people around us are shaped and defined by the relationship that is at the core. And we each have our own challenge as we navigate this for ourselves. But as we do this, we also have the challenge at looking at the people around us as well. Also struggling with these questions and maybe recognising that the struggle that with that other person that they have is different to ours and that they are still made by God, that they are dearly loved and that as a fellow brother or sister in Christ, I have the opportunity to support them and to encourage them as they work through those struggles. Because in the end, our desire is not to be people who say, I understand to be what it is at the core so I can judge you who are struggling with stuff. But we want to see people grafted into the tree of Christ, to know what it is to be connected to the roots of eternal life, which is Jesus crucified and risen. And that hopefully that means that when we see people who are struggling with their identity, that we can love and respect them, that we can be patient with them and we can point them toward the truth. Because one of the glorious mysteries of the gospel is that even though we are aware of our own inadequacies, even though we know that we have our own struggles, 
those times when we ignore God and we make ourselves the centre of our own little universe, the God who is great in love uh, nevertheless uses us to declare the goodness of the gospel to the people around us. Look what verses 20 and 21 say. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is a glorious truth that God calls us to our true identity. It's not fleeting like so many of the urges we have in life. It's not fickle like the identity we might have in our football team, uh, particularly if you're a Kiwis fan. Instead, it is foundational offering us a firm ground. Our God wants us to thrive. Our God wants us to grow. And by the grace of God, when we put our trust in him, when we see our identity as being in him, uh, we can branch out uh, into Orange, New South Wales and the world. Let's pray about that now. Uh, Lord, we do thank you that uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that even though we get caught up in so many different elements of our identity, you make us new in Christ Jesus. Help us to find our core in you. Help us to grow as Christians. And by your grace and mercy, Lord, help us to graft others into the roots of eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.